Welcome to the Success IQ podcast, the show for entrepreneurs wanting to create and live an exceptional life. I'm your host, Jeff Nicholson. For those of you who are new to the show, welcome. I'm an expert in performance and mindset, supporting business owners to create exceptional results in life and business. And I achieve this through coaching, training, speaking, and my online programs. I started this podcast to discover how other thought business leaders create and enjoy success, and to identify the common strategies and techniques, as well as the mindset they have adopted to live their version of exceptional. My aim is simple. It's for you to learn and implement the valuable lessons shared in these episodes. You deserve to live and enjoy an exceptional life, but in order to achieve this, you will need to adopt new strategies and ways of thinking to accomplish your goals. Now, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss any of these brilliant episodes. Head over to jeffnicholson.co.uk to register for my Kick Mediocrity in the Nuts newsletter, as well as all you need to know on how to connect with me on social media or join the Facebook group. Now, on with the show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I truly hope you are having an amazing week. Welcome to episode 171. So we are kicking off season seven, and we've got some great guests lined up for you. From CEOs of FinTech, all the way to private investigators, coaches, leadership specialists, and everything in between. It's gonna be a great season, so I can't wait to share with these share with you these amazing guests who we've got on so let's talk about our guest this week now our guest this week is michelle moore now in this world of distraction we face decreased effectiveness and energy begin to sustain value creation without sacrificing well-being as a leader with your teams as a seasoned big four consultant in tech driven change and awareness based transformation michelle moore has a refreshingly unique approach she brings a holistic work design strategy then supercharges it with mit's wisdom practices so teams can focus better i'm looking forward to this one michelle welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I'm really looking forward to it, Michelle. Um, before we dive into the, the sort of nitty gritty conversation, could you give us a little bit of a backstory of what's brought you point to this, uh, brought you to this point today, should we say? Yeah, I was thinking about how to summarize that nice and concisely. And I was reflecting on what has been, what have been the seeds of entrepreneurship that maybe even happened early on. And I realized that the first one happened when I was on a business trip. At the time, I was working for a Russian-American space joint venture out of Houston. And we were the commercial arm of declassified Soviet space technology. So I had been on a trip to Moscow with my boss and um, he decided to drive back to Poland and fly back because there were some business stops on the way. So we got stuck in Riga, Latvia. And we were stuck, literally stuck because the border was closed. And so I discovered a street jazz band, a Russian street jazz band. And long story short, 
I ended up doing a recording of them in Riga at the Riga radio studio. And a year later, they were in Houston doing shows. And this was actually under the umbrella with my boss's approval at the time. I was in my 20s. I was still doing my MBA. And um, just a bizarre entrepreneurial feat. And those guys ended up immigrating to Texas or to, to the United States and have are both successful jazz music, musicians in the U.S. And that was sort of the the first entrepreneurial project. And the second one was I found myself on an airplane still working for this um, Russian-American space joint venture. And at the time, this project was I was managing the Soviet space exhibition through five or six science museums in the United States. And I'm on a plane going on vacation to Germany and I sit next to a guy and we were talking about the wall, how it was still being dismantled. Of course, the Berlin Wall had been dismantled a while back, but the East German border wall still had chunks of wall in place, and that was about to be gone. And I said to him, you know, is there any wall left? And again, long story short, this guy worked for the Volkswagen plant in Germany. And he said, you know, right behind our plant is a big chunk of wall. I know the mayor in Wolfsburg. If you want a piece, that'd be great. Again, I call my boss in Houston. I say, you know, for this exhibition in Kansas, in the Kansas Cosmosphere, they were doing an exhibition where they were showing the history of Soviet space and Soviet space development in other countries. So Soviet space development in Russia or the Soviet Union. And I thought this is a great idea to put a big chunk of the East German border wall in this exhibit. And again, that happened. They bought it, it got shipped. Um, and those were the two fun entrepreneurial projects that I remember. More on a serious note, you know, I, I did an MBA and ended up in Big Four Consulting. And I was at Ernst & Young and built a technology and security risk advisory practice. And that was the first business that I built in the context of EY. And that's how you make partner, right? That's the, the road to partnership. And then I did it again because I was recruited to PricewaterhouseCoopers after Anderson took over EY in Moscow. That was one of the few countries where when Anderson collapsed worldwide, they actually took over, uh, because they were larger, the Ernst & Young practice and retained the name of Ernst & Young, obviously. But a lot of us moved then at the time to PwC. And there I had to start a practice from scratch again. So building a governance, risk, and compliance practice for PricewaterhouseCoopers in Russia. And that's the story of the past entrepreneurship. And then most recently, you know, having come to Canada, I really was in a state of reinvention. I had been in this Russian bubble living in Moscow for 15 years. And when I came to Canada, I realized, wow, I don't even know about climate change. I have been serving oil companies for the last probably 10 years mostly. My clients were mostly Russian oil companies because I speak Russian. And I had this awakening that, wow, you have really not had any real social impact. You created jobs, you built practices, you made money, but what have you done that was really, really good for the world? And I had a very guilty feeling about 
this work that I had done prior to moving to Canada. So I ended up switching into social entrepreneurship. I was asked to lead a company, a tech company serving philanthropic foundations. So I learned about the ecosystem of social entrepreneurship and then founded my brand Mind Equity about in 2014, not really knowing what to do with it, but COVID has birthed the clarity on that, I would say. So I'll pause there for a moment. Maybe you want to dive in and ask a question i feel like i'm on a monologue here no no absolutely no it's fascinating um i suppose there's two things is the first thing is um what is it that mind equity focuses on and then the second part is is what um i'm intrigued to know where what that clarity has been if you're obviously willing to share um of what covid has brought um has helped you sort of get clarity on yeah, so Mind Equity is a management consulting firm, and we help professional teams focus better in order to sustain value creation without sacrificing well being. So, a holistic approach to really doing better work in half the time. And what informed this development, which really began much prior to COVID, but in COVID, I had the time and the space to create a holistic model around how do we harness and protect organizational attention? Because here's my belief. I believe that the fastest way to sustain value creation, which is so important for knowledge workers and professional teams, is to protect and harness attention. Because if we don't do that, we are going to suffer, continue to suffer with burnout and overwhelm and growth for growth's sake. So I really was able to reflect and amalgamate the learnings from always being in this space of technology-driven system implementation. So primarily my work in the big four world was around tech-driven change and focusing very much on the people aspect of it. And then in coming to Canada in 2010, you know, the rise of the smartphone started. So what was happening to me personally was I was noticing difficulty in focusing due to tech distraction, and also realizing that, wow, I have really only been rewarded for intellectual thought or analytic thought and analysis and data my whole life. And I have not ever been rewarded for tapping into team wisdom or more tacit knowledge, the knowledge of the human experience. And the reason I, I understood this out of balance situation in, in you know, 2011, 2012, is because I had discovered Theory U at MIT. So I don't know, Jeff, if you've ever heard of the Presencing Institute at MIT? No, I haven't, but I would love, I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, so, so as was I when I discovered it. Um, I, I discovered the Presencing Institute, which is an offshoot of the Sloan Business School. And the management framework, or I would call it a systems change framework or a transformation framework called Theory U, 
for me is an amalgamation of my two selves. The self that has been a yoga practitioner and a meditator since my 20s, and then my management consulting analytical self. So theory, you merge these two parts of me simply because it embeds reflective practice and embodiment practices in a systems change methodology. And when I saw this, I was just I was just flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it existed. So I really dove deep. I took time off and I I studied uh, with various teachers at the Presidency Institute and ultimately landed in um, a program around the embodiment practices and have become part of the global teaching team now at the Presencing Institute that delivers social presencing theater practices to, to teams. I work on, I work with organizations. Uh, you can do this in education and, and other things. So, and this is what also led me to, to be able to build a holistic methodology to how do we focus better as knowledge worker or professional teams? I think that's the conundrum also in COVID because our heads are in our screens. We're becoming more and more disembodied and we're losing well-being. We're losing the ability to innovate and to be effective. So that's how I would summarize coming to where I am today. Okay. Okay. So, um, okay. So this fascinates me. The, the, the holistic approach is when you, when you are describing the holistic approach, what do you specifically mean by an, a, a holistic approach? Just so I can check that I'm kind of like thinking the same thing. Yes. Um, what is your, what, what is your definition of a holistic approach? So a holistic approach is one that incorporates all of the elements that impact our ability to harness and protect attention. So those elements are number one, our ability to focus and how well that skill focuses a skill. So how well is that skill developed? That's number one. The second thing in the workplace, and this is all in the context of the workplace that I'm focused on. So, um, the second point is culture. How am I impacted by the behaviors, mindsets, values, agreements in the culture of the team or the organization that I'm working in? Because that impacts my attention. Do we have a culture of instant response? Or do we have agreements that say we're, we can block time for focused work time to create value at certain times or not, right? Every culture is different in that respect. Number three is the body wisdom component. And I call it the body wisdom component because, you know, focus is a skill, but attention is a function of the body, similar to a respiratory system or similar to metabolism, because attention is the mechanism by which the brain focuses its resources. And so if we are not in tune or balanced with the body-mind relationship as individuals and also as social bodies, as teams, then we begin to have these issues of we're out of balance in terms of well-being, we're out of balance in terms of interconnectedness, especially now in COVID, being on Zooms all the time, are we... You know, the human experience of being on Zoom or in any virtual space is, is a much different lived experience than the human experience meeting in a room. And so, so that's, that's the body wisdom piece, which, which also includes embodied practices. Um, are we using 
agile games or Lego serious play or other toys like the empathy toy or the failure toy to aid in our innovation processes? Do we have this balance of thinking and sensing? Um, so that's the body wisdom component. And then the fourth and fifth components are, are easier to understand in my view. The, the fourth component is tools. What is our portfolio of digital tools? Are we digital minimalists or do we have shiny new tool syndrome? And how are we relating to all of our tools in the workplace, i.e. being distracted by them or not, or having a balance or off-screen time and on-screen time. So that whole relationship to tools and in tools, I also include not just digital tools, but what are the metrics we're using to measure effectiveness or innovation or well-being and um, what are the agreements that we are using as tools to also help us uh, work and collaborate better and the fifth component in this holistic approach is the environment how are we designing our work environments in terms of the actual physical space that we're in and now we're in often three physical spaces we're in a home office we might be in a real office office like we were used to and we might be in a co-working space or a coffee shop so how are those spaces designed and how do those impact our ability to focus and then how are we designing our virtual spaces and by virtual space design i mean which tools are we selecting to enter into this container of the virtual workspace? Is it Zoom or something else? And also, how are we holding space in the virtual container for psychological safety, for inclusion, for real collaborative and generative dialogue? So that is what I mean by holistic, incorporating all of those five major workplace elements that impact organizational attention. Michelle, I can honestly say this this interview is not going to be long enough. <laughs> <laughs> to discuss what I want to discuss with you. So, um, okay. So there's there's a there's a couple of fascinating things, um, especially for me is that body and wisdom bit that the, uh, in the integration of understanding about when we look after ourselves, we're going to perform better as a team. Um, and I, I think quite often that that that's a lot of people don't pay any attention to that or certainly not enough attention. And then the environment is also a big one, because for me, um, you, it, it, there's so many companies that don't think about that. They just have this. I mean, I, I you know, the, before I started on my own, I grew up in the cubicle world and I couldn't think of anything more mundane and life sapping than looking at a beige padded wall where my colleague was on the other side um and how do you even start to to look at the environment the the sort of never mind the as you say and uh, and i love the fact that you included a coffee um shop and stuff because a lot of sort of especially entrepreneurs generally work in that sort of space but where do you even start before i even start asking you about culture and focus and um, where do we even start when we start looking at the environment so you you might want to start with budget what can we what can we change what is what is changeable i mean actually that's probably my old pwc brain talking saying let's start with budget let me tap into my wisdom brain here and and the other approach would be to Let's look at the current state in all of those four environments, the virtual and then the three possible physical environments, and just notice, can we shift anything to enable better focus just by doing simple things like 
making sure there's a door or putting up signs that saying, hey, I'm at work now or agreeing with your spouse. Let's say, you know, a lot of people have the issue now of kids being at home because in, in Ontario, again, now <laughs> with the kids are back home. So I have colleagues who are dealing with the kids at home and that distraction. So how do you negotiate with your spouse to put in time, chunks of time where you're handling the kids and chunks of time where they are and also having rules around when my door's shut, it means I'm actually at work, I'm not here. Uh, So those are very simple things that one can do. But then when you ask the, the company that has a budget the question, how do we design for collaboration and innovation and how much money do we spend also on ergonomics, for example, in the home office and in the office office. So those things are increasingly being looked at now in this COVID environment because I think most organizations are realizing even after the pandemic, there's going to be a very hybrid work environment. And the design question is simple. It's individual, Jeff. You know, the starting point is individual. It depends on the leader's uh, propensity for designing the environments in a way that maximizes innovation, social impact, and whatever purpose that organization is is about. Yeah, and I think I think as well as is that, that that it's that bit of leadership, isn't it? Because sometimes you'll get the the people that just go, "Well, we're just putting furniture in and like it or lump it," kind of like thing. Um, but it's also interesting to when you watch different people's, you know, that the, they can shine in productivity in so many different environments. I I know that I've got some clients that work better in a cafe and can't stand sitting at a desk in an office. Um, You know, I've got, I know some people, including myself, prefer to work at a standing desk. But if you had told me that, you know, even 10 years, five years ago, I would have laughed at someone and said, what, stand all day at the desk? Are you kidding? And then someone adds a treadmill to the bottom, and then we start going into all sorts of different things. But it it is amazing with that sort of thing. Now, when you look at the environmental stuff, or even sort of the body wisdom, and and maybe most of this stuff, do you do some sort of... um, uh, uh, my brain has just gone blank. Uh, Myers Briggs or um, or DISC um, uh, assessment in order to find their best working strategy. Is there is there one that helps you with that? So it begins with an overall attention diagnostic across these five elements that impact attention, because this is a pretty new area, right? There's not a generic tool out there that would cover this question, what is our current state? What is our current ability in our team or in our whole organization to harness and protect attention? And so I've created one. I have a short one on my website that anybody can do. And then I have a longer one that I offer to organizations. And certainly that's done at the beginning of a project, a 50 question questionnaire that assesses the current state. And it's a hybrid of individual questions and team questions, right? Because you can't solve a team culture or a team project without also looking at the individual's contribution and and looking at the sum of the parts. So yeah, we begin with a current state assessment, trying to answer the question, what is our current ability to protect and harness attention? 
Yeah, it's uh, and 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 did you and you created this assessment from scratch based on your experience with the um, the theory you and and through your experience with President's Institute. So I've created this based on my experience. First and foremost, I would say being you know an equity partner in PricewaterhouseCoopers, and being in the management consulting field since my since my twenties, my late twenties, um, because I've always, as I said, been in the space of providing services around technology driven change and focusing on the people change aspect. So there's that learning brought in with the learnings from the social entrepreneurship community in Canada that I've been involved in now for the last 10 years, which includes a lot of different thinking around self-organization and inclusion and also sensing practice. And then came Theory U, which layered on top of that. And then, of course, combined with my own reflective practices since my 20s, um, which I include as open water swimming, meditation and yoga. So, so I think it represents the culmination of what I've learned in my whole life. That's where it has come from. And um, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so the, the, there's a couple of areas I want to do before we jump over to the second part. Um, one of them is that power of reflection. Um, you know, you do meditation, you do yoga and um, open, open swimming. Um for you, what does that um, that that sort of reflection point give you? If you were speaking to someone who'd never done that sort of thing, what, for you, how would you describe, and why would you why would you say it was possibly beneficial for them? So I can only speak from experience. It was beneficial for me because. I am a task switching addict. I'm an adrenaline addict. I mean, how can you live in Russia for 15 years and not be addicted to an adrenaline rush? Um, and I'm a country switcher. You know, this is my fourth country of long-term residence. So, so I, I love change and I love multitasking, which is, which is not a thing. And so I, I became aware of this, I think, early on. And I also have a type A personality, tendency to overwork, and all of that was, of course, fueled in the big four environment. So I think coincidentally, I prevented myself from burning out by tapping into yoga and meditation practice, which I had discovered in college. And so it just was, it was very much separate from my work. It was never, you know, part, it was kind of secret, you know, I just sort of did this on the side. Um, and then in the last 10 years, especially in Canada, you know, leaving Russia and moving to Canada, I found that a lot of people talk about it, do it, workplaces invest in this stuff now as part of well-being packages. So it doesn't have to be under the under the covers anymore. And it really enables an equilibrium, a balancing between your physical and your digital experiences, a balancing between wisdom and and intelligence, a balancing between thinking all the time versus adding some sensing into that, right? Uh, balance between machines and humans. So, so it's just, it just allows a bit of that coming into equilibrium again. And I think I would have probably gotten sick or, you know, had some sort of illness if I had not done this, um, even starting in Russia, right? When I was in that high stress environment. Yeah. And, and speaking from someone who did it 
um, backwards. So go, went through burnout and was seriously ill. And then finding reflection. Um, and my reflection point was meditation and, and journaling. Um, I, I, I can't ever imagine not doing it now because I can see the benefit. But I know that sometimes it's quite hard to... You know, you don't want to convince people. You want to help them see the benefits in themselves. But um, to be able to go through that sort of thing and and have that pause button and to be able to just reset on a day-to-day basis can be just so not only liberating, but obviously massively beneficial, as you've just said. There is a great book that creates a business case for it in a non-meditative context, because a lot of times, you know, people are like, I don't want to meditate. Um, But realization, I think, can be that there are so many ways to rest. So there's a book called Rest by the author Alex something something Pang. Uh, He has a difficult last name, but the book is just called Rest, R-E-S-T. And this book talks about the importance of balance um, between work and rest, because without quality rest, we can't have quality work. And he cites examples of all these famous authors, inventors, scientists, and how they rested. And you can also take the example, I think it's Yuval Harari, who wrote um, many, many great books, the last one being right, the 21 lessons in the 21st century. He rests or or his resting practice is, is very hardcore. It's three months, I think a year or something of meditation retreat. So that's not something I can ever imagine myself doing, but it's just an example of a very prolific author who is one of the greatest thought leaders in the world right now and and his practice, right? Yeah, I always I always thought Wayne Dyer was a bit nuts doing what he did, but some of the wisdom that came out of his sort of medit- meditation and um and reflection practices were quite amazing when he um i think one of the ones that i was quite taken back by was the um he t- i think it took a year out and and meditated on the Tao Te Ching um wow i did not know that and uh, what is his book called he did a great film based on it called shift which is a lovely lovely f- um sort of um educational spiritual uh, film um but it was but it was an absolutely amazing uh, amazing story um the the other thing i want to talk about before we jump over which is a really important one and, and you've mentioned a few times we're living in this world where everything is trying to get our attention um and we really need to focus on the things that matter for you what what are some of the what are some of the strategies? So if we're speaking to the to listeners now and the listeners are going, Christ, I definitely need some focus in my, in my life at the minute. Um, what are some of the, can you, or can you suggest some simple strategies to help people um, build that focus muscle? And I, I mean, one of the ones I would say is meditation. I don't know whether you'd agree with that, but I'd be interested to know what your opinions are. So definitely, absolutely, I agree that meditation is a great practice for training the skill of focus. But the starting point in the organizational context, uh, I start asking teams and individuals, what is your definition of value creation? 
how do you create value other than the dollar sign, right? How are you creating value? What are you innovating? What's your social impact? Um, what's your definition of value based on your team or your organization? And what's your definition of value based on your individual role? So when that is clear, the next question is answered. How much time do you spend on activities that directly contribute to value creation? And we do a little very simple exercise that has them reflect on last week, on the whole five days of the last week, and note down on a piece of paper, what were the top four to six activities that took up your work time? And I also have them write down, what's your work time? Is it 60 hours? Is it 80 hours? Is it 40 hours? What equals 100, right? So we write down work equals 100 hours or 60 hours, whatever it is, and then write down a maximum of four to six activities that you did. Now you've got those activities written down. Now circle which of those activities, and you assign percentages to each. So you kind of see, okay, here, you can draw a pie, right? You draw a simple circle on a piece of paper, and, and uh, you allocate uh, pieces of the pie to these maximum four to six activities. And then you circle which of the activities directly contribute to how you've defined value creation. And then people are mostly in shock about how little time they are spending on what they've defined to be truly value creation. And that opens up that whole conversation of, well, how much focused deep work time do we actually need, right? There's a great, depending on job roles, um, you know, you may have more logistical tasks than you do undistracted focused work tasks. And that's totally fine. Let's just understand what the balance should be. And for every job role, it's different. So that's the first clarity point. And then saying, okay, here's my current state. Let's just accept what the current state is. Well, what is the possibility for the future state? And here I caution people right away to say the future state is not to try and do eight hours of deep work or, or undistracted focused work time per day because the brain can't handle it. Cal Newport and his book Deep Work clearly uh, uh, articulates that even the most intelligent person can do a maximum of about four hours of truly undistracted focused work time per day. And so, so that's where it begins, Jeff. So, so I don't know if I, and, and then the, the question on focus, how to train your skill of focus. Well, there's a whole myriad of things, meditation and about a hundred other things you can do to train your focus. And I say that that is dependent on the individual. And so we, we go through, you know, what are, what are the possibilities? And some people don't realize that they already have a focus training practice. Uh, for example, if they're playing sports without ear pods in their heads, right? That, that is a focus and a resting practice, right? Um, and, and a body wisdom practice. So depending on how you're doing uh, athletics or sport, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, yeah. Yeah. One, one of the things that I've found in, a, in, in quite a few businesses that I've gone in and worked with is they, they, seem to give little time for focus space so you know you know almost like if you know saying do not disturb on your phone is a crime rather than actually but yet they still get um you know in some cases some uh, you know may get chastised because they're they haven't done the work they're supposed to be doing but they're not allowed the space to kind of like switch off the phones and just give us, as you said there, you know, that four hours of deep work because they're constantly bombarded with those 
distractions. And if it's not, um, you know, people coming to your desk or if it's not, you know, phones ringing or whatever. And I once um, had a conversation. I can't remember where I had a conversation with the guy. Um, but he talked about they have um, a policy that they put something on their door to simulate do not disturb me and they very the leadership team went in there and said look we understand that you have there's times when you just have to get cracking and get the work done and we need to have this policy where people just can't walk in and distract but it's quite a hard it's almost like a cultural thing because it's most of the companies that i have experienced doing that have been that old-fashioned command and control sort of way but do you think the more uh should we say um more um modern way of thinking um companies are introducing more of that of of, of a better work ethic and um understanding sort of human needs than possibly older companies so, Jeff, you make a really, really good point because it's like you read my mind because the, that's why the next step in, in this model is, is going to the culture piece and looking at what are the written and unwritten rules or behaviors and mindsets in this team or in this organization that are impeding sustained value creation without sacrificing well-being, that are impeding you know, the protection of attention. And so, so yes, in one, one answer to your question is definitely we go straight to culture and reflect and collaborate together in generative dialogue with the team. What does your role need in terms of blocked calendar time? What is the unwritten behavior around participation in 99 Slack channels? You know, what is the unwritten behavior around commenting in a shared Google Doc that everyone has access to, but maybe not everyone actually really needs to contribute to it, but they contribute to it because they have fear of missing out or, or think people will think they're not, not contributing. So all of those questions are asked so that work agreements can be put down on paper, simple work agreements about instant response, right? What does instant response mean in our company? You know, it's easy in a hospital. Instant response is the emergency room. No one has a problem with distraction from a cell phone in an emergency room because they are working in a life or death situation. Well, just simulate the same question. What is instant, when is instant response truly required in employee to employee communication as well as employee to client communication. Um, and to your point about, you mentioned, you know, the older structure companies versus the newer structure companies. Um, I think things are shifting. I hope things are shifting. You know, in the last 10 years, I've been working mostly with more agile, open-minded, young tech companies in Canada that are also social entrepreneurs. So there you have a very receptive audience. But even in that audience, the, the, the main issue in, in my current client is this unwritten behavior around Slack channels, right? And this, this real fear of letting go of instant response for internal communication because they're so used to being able to task switch quickly and give their opinion on this or that, you know, channel or, or document or whatever. So it, it, it is not an easy journey sifting through the, the cultural aspect of this. 
Yeah, and, and, and often when I when I'm speaking to clients or, or even prospects, and you go in and speak to them, and it's it, the way I sort of explain it is is you're educating your customers how you are going to respond. So if all of a sudden, as soon as they text, and every single time you do that, you're immediately responding to them, there's a psychological thing where you think they're sitting at the other end of the phone waiting for it because there's, you're almost it's it, you're almost tra- training in some version like a Pavlov's dog, and there's got to be there's got to be a point where you can take control and go, it's not. It really isn't that urgent. If someone's going, can you send me a number? And let, obviously, if, if you're there and you're just walking about fine, but about prioritizing what you are doing at that moment in time, sometimes, as much as the client doesn't want to acknowledge uh, and see that, is they are not that most important part at that moment in time. Jeff, you're totally right. And I think it's just about being open about communication protocol, you know, with an individual client or with a team, just, just asking the question, what, what, how would you like to be communicated with? Here is what we suggest also for the well-being of our team and your team and this project. You know, just having, I, I feel like in, in my experience, I don't recall in the big four world, certainly, that we had those conversations. No, because it's it's it, it, in some ways it was always, you know, as soon as as soon as that phone rings, you answer it. But the 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 it's that yes, but that's fine in a in a one way thing. If your customer services and your in your job is answering customers' things, that's fine. But if you're in different departments, that you can't have that same process right the way through a company, because as you were saying before, different different companies and different people have different roles and different tasks. Absolutely, and the one thing we're seeing also in in COVID is that there is a real shift towards more asynchronous communication sometimes, and of course, too many meetings online. So, so how do we get the balance back in terms of having a voice call, let's say you you have a colleague that you know well, well, can you walk outside and talk to each other on the cell phone instead of being in front of a screen? You know, can you opt out sometimes of the on-screen meeting? Or, you know, why are we sending so many text messages when sometimes a five-minute conversation, either on Zoom or on the telephone, can solve the whole thing and there's not this plethora of, of texting or message, instant messaging back and forth? There's, there's that component, too, that is a bit out of balance, I think. Yeah, I could speak to you about I could speak to you about all of these things in so much more in depth. Um, we're going to have to jump to the second part of the show. Um, so, so the the first question is: um, On average, how much time roughly do you dedicate to self development a week? That's body, mind, and spirit. Yeah, so I think about two hours a day, and that's been a possible since moving to Canada. So that's a combination of sport, movement, meditation. Um, I even include cooking in that if I'm doing mindful cooking without watching, you know, something on Netflix or listening to a podcast at the same time. So it fluctuates, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's getting harder and harder to watch things on Netflix because we've been off for so long. We've watched everything. Yeah, yeah, it's true. There there isn't that selection of things you used to be able to go in and sit down and go, okay. And then like, no, scene, scene, scene. 
16. It's, a, it's like, okay, move on, move on. Um, question number two is, what book has made the biggest impact to your self-development or personal growth and why? And it doesn't have to be a traditional self-development book. So absolutely leading from the emerging future by Otto Scharmer, who is at the Presencing Institute at MIT. So that is the book that introduced me to Theory U, but what really changed my thinking or or made me understand that I understood nothing about myself was that um, it talks about leaning into and releasing the three voices, the voice of fear, the voice of judgment, and the voice of cynicism. And that the because we're humans, that these voices are always present in every meeting. They're present in our heads during the day. And so the, the, the interesting practice here is noticing when the voice arises and even just saying to yourself, oh, here's my voice of judgment, and then just letting it go. And In some teams now, there's a practice cultivated that if we're in a meeting together and these voices are arising, that we simply acknowledge them out loud if we are able to be that vulnerable in the team. And it just changes the dynamic. It changes the ability to collaborate. So this book, Leading from the Emerging Future, of course, is is a Theory U book and introduced me to that framework but this example of the three voices and also the idea that things aren't linear, that change isn't linear. So theory U is called U because it is actually a U, a U shape. So instead of, you know, in my old PricewaterhouseCoopers world, we, you know, did current state analysis, future state visioning, implementing something and continuous improvement in a linear line. And then, you know, you repeated that. In theory, you, you go down the left side of that U shape and you're really, you're doing some current state analysis, certainly, but mostly for the purpose of asking the question, what do we need to let go of in order to enable the highest potential future to arise? And that was a huge different way of thinking for me. So I'll stop there because going into theory U is also probably a three hour conversation, but um no, I may I may have to get that book um, because that, that it, it does sound fascinating. There's a shorter version. I'll send it to you uh, that summarizes it. That that is more digestible. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. As long as it works for dyslexics, that's fine. Because I'm re- I was reading this book called I think it was called Principles. Um, wow, that's a that's a hard book to read. I think it's a hard book to read if you're not dyslexic, but if you are dyslexic, it's even harder. Um, number three, what app makes the biggest impact to your business or personal life? Do you know what I love is otter.ai, the transcription software. It's brilliant, isn't it? I, I, I can't, I use it almost every day. Yeah, it, it's absolutely brilliant. You're the first person to mention that one, I think. Yeah, I've only been, I think I discovered it about two years ago now. Um, okay, number five. Uh, no, number four, sorry. What's your biggest business mistake that turned into a valuable lesson and what did it teach you? So I would say in general, not prototyping or not having a spirit of playfulness. So approaching things in this perfectionist manner, trying to create something and just waiting and waiting and waiting to bring it to the world. Um, you know, because I created this brand, Mind Equity, back in 2014, but it's really only now coming to fruition in the way that I believe it should be in the world. And 
I think it is because of this lack of playfulness and lack of iterative prototyping. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it can be 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 challenging, especially with the perfectionism bit. And do you find the playfulness manages that perfectionism better? Absolutely. Especially if I'm collaborating with someone who is more playful than I am, that makes it easy. Um, but learning how to be playful is is difficult for a type A personality. So I constantly have to remind myself that it's okay to be playful and it's okay to make mistakes. So uh, it's a work in progress, but I think it's it has been it has been a mistake probably even even back in big four consulting, but nobody told you, hey, it's a good idea to be playful back then. So that idea never occurred to me at that time. Yeah, because I suppose is when you're when you're being playful, you're removing well, you're treating it like you you I suppose would you say you're using your inner child to do it rather than a rather than that sort of super serious adult, or do, 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 would you describe it a different way? You know, which company helped me a lot is there's a Canadian company called 21 Toys here in Toronto that developed the empathy toy and the failure toy. And I became a, a facilitator of those toys. And I think incorporating a toy that you can touch in your consulting work is it what really has helped me also bring playful playfulness to the work and playfulness in my own development of my own services. That has been a tool, um, a tangible tool that I, or those just, just using toy. A lot of other people use, you know, Lego series player agile games as well. Right. Um, yeah. I've never, I've never heard of that one. The Lego, the Lego one. I've never heard of that one. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, Oh, Lego series play. Yeah. I'm not certified in that. There's a whole certification in Lego series play. And I was shocked a couple of months ago to see a big full page advertisement for Legos uh, show up in wired magazine. Showing a guy like a tech guy, right. A tech entrepreneur in wired, you know, building a big model out of miniature lego pieces so also as as something to you know complement rest i loved it i i, I saved those ads i could have missed my calling i used to play yeah, with legos well, all go. the time when i was a you kid you can bring Who it knew? out again <laughs> <laughs> so number five is what are your challenges in harmonizing work and life and how do you manage them you know because i am doing what I want to do now um, and for the last couple of years, I don't find it really a challenge, although sometimes it does get blurred. But because I have practices in place to anchor me and because the work that I'm doing is so purpose driven, I do not feel that it is a problem, to be honest. Brilliant. Um Number six, what advice you would, would you give an entrepreneur that you wish you had known starting out? Well, I'm going to say be playful and do prototyping early on and just go in there and test stuff in the market right away, right? Um, number seven, what is your definition of success? So the first bit is, can I answer the question or, or can I state with confidence that I have high well-being. I have high if I have high physical and mental well-being, then that is a first sign of success. Another one is am I interacting with people, employees, clients, 
partners that give me energy that I can learn from, that appreciate what I'm bringing to the table. If there is harmony in that, that is huge success. And am I having some social impact? Am I impacting the world in some useful way rather than just trying to make money? Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, the, number eight is, do you have any daily routines or rituals that make a huge positive impact today? Now, I know we've talked about meditation and yoga and stuff, but um, do you have them in a specific set ritual or do you just sort of um, do them at least at a point in the day? I do them at least at a point in the day. And the other thing I would add is that I have a, I have two group practices, two practices where I'm part of a group. One is the social presencing teaching team and practitioner group from the Presencing Institute. We get together once, once a week and we simply do the practices together and share how we're bringing these practices into the world. So we actually do the practices, uh, the embodiment and movement practices. And then I am also in a group um, a reflective practice group that is exploring meditation and consciousness. And so that is a monthly group. And sometimes I do also participate. Toronto has a meditation group that's online now, of course, called the Consciousness Explorers Club. And so there I don't know too many people, but I drop in, in there every once in a while because I find that being in a group environment doing these types of practices is very helpful. Wow. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, okay. So we're coming to the end now. Um, the floor is now yours. How can we find out more about you? Um, you know, do you have any um, special places that we should go to to find out more about you? Um, please take it away. Thank you, Jeff. So I have a gift for anyone listening, and that is if you want to assess your current level of focus, there is a tool on my website that takes less than probably three minutes to complete and will give you a sense of where you are along each of these five areas that impact our attention. And you can go to mindequity.ca. So that's mind, like the mind, M-I-N-D, equity, like an equity investment, and .ca, which is for Canada. So mindequity.ca, and there you will see a green button that says score your focus, and you can do that diagnostic tool and see what your current state is and reflect a bit on what would you like to change. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. And um, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time of your busy day and joining me on the show. I wish you the greatest success. Thank you, Jeff. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to you. So first of all, just let me say a massive thank you for joining me today. It's lovely to know that you're out there listening. And it's great to have the emails that I get from you with suggestions about the show and what you think about the show. That's really nice. Really does help me make the show even better. If you'd like to find out more about me and the types of services I offer or my social media links, then please visit www.jeffnicholson.uk. You can also join us on the Facebook page. Just search for Success IQ Podcast, and that's a new page that we've put up that I'm trying to grow and develop. So you can tune in and find us on other stations such as Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and of course, iTunes. And if you have the time, it would be great if you could pop over there, leave a rating, leave a review, because it really does help me 
grow the show and make the impact that I'm really looking for. So just to say, I hope you have a fantastic week. I wish you the greatest success and I look forward to speaking to you next week. Take care.